0: If you please turn your Bibles, book of 1 Corinthians, we are in chapter 16. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 962. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. And this is our fifth sermon in chapter 16. And I'm still not done. This is as many sermons as any other chapter, more than most of the other chapters that we've looked at in 1 Corinthians. And many preachers when they're preaching through 1 Corinthians, they see chapter 16 as an epilogue. They see the book really ending at that climax in, in chapter 15. So many will only really preach one closing sermon putting all the touching on all the different subjects listed. However, chapter 16 contains many different topics, short little instructions are provided in this chapter. And this chapter is almost like the, the book of Proverbs, where it contains a, a splattering of these, these standalone instructions rather than a continuous argument that's seen in earlier chapters. And there are many good nuggets that are contained in this chapter. And we're going slower. Going slower allows us to explore and to, and to dig deep into the, and appreciate the wisdom that's contained in each of these nuggets. And the two verses that we're looking at today, they really provide a very high-level summary of the message of the entire letter. These verses, I think, tie together the application that was given to the Corinthians, but also given to us. So this is our our application of this entire letter to combat these problems and and, uh, corrections that are given in this letter. So 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what are instructions that are given to us? And Lord, we need your spirit not only to do what this verse what these verses command, but to even understand what they command. So Father, I pray that you will pour out your holy Spirit on us this morning. pour out your spirit on me that I will proclaim your truth, pour out your spirit on those of us here in this room, those of us who are watching, on the live stream, that we will hear from you. We will have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be changed. Each one of us will be changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, as we've seen through this study in 1 Corinthians, this letter provides encouragement. This letter provides instruction. But above all, this letter provides rebuke. Rebuke to an immature church. A church that was very worldly in its thinking. A church that did not think or act any differently than their unbelieving neighbors. See, they were in a pagan city. Corinth was a pagan city. And a city that, in many ways, was diametrically opposed to biblical morality. And the thinking of this city, of the pagans in this city, had now crept into the church. The Corinthians were thinking more like the pagans. They had become indistinguishable from the Corinthian culture. And to this immature church, Paul gives instructions. Instructions on in many different areas. In the first four chapters, Paul addresses this first major problem that we see in this church. Remember what that was? This was division. There were factions in this church, and they were fighting among these factions. There were some saying, "I follow Paul," "I follow Apollos," "I follow Cephas." And these factions were not based on theology. They were not based on truth. They were based on personality. They were based on preferences, the personality and the preferences of the leaders and the followers. And this division destroyed the unity. It destroyed the joy. It destroyed the fellowship that this church was to have and display to the outside world. In chapters 5 and 6, we see sexual immorality. What's described in chapter 5 is a, a sexual immorality that was extreme even by pagan standards. And how did the Corinthians react to this immorality? Was there shame? Was there church discipline? Was there correction toward the offender? No. This immorality was not only tolerated, but in some ways it was even celebrated by the church. Some of the church saw this toleration of the this, this sexual sin as a sign of how open-minded they were, how tolerant they were, how cosmopolitan they were. They saw it as a sign of the freedom that they had in Christ to sin in this way that would even shock the unbelievers. In chapter 6, Paul rebukes the Corinthians because they had lawsuits among them, among the church members. And see, instead of taking the disputes to the church leaders to work together in love and to resolve, the Corinthians are taking each other to court. They're taking each other to unbelievers to settle these disputes. And they were more concerned with their rights than they were with their witness. Today so they weren't following the example of Christ. Christ who lovingly gave up his rights in order to save the lost but rather they, they took this attitude I gotta look out for number one. They were no different than the pagans. And after warning them to flee sexual immorality, a sexual morality that really would have been ever present in the city of Corinth, Paul then instructs them on the proper use of sexuality. He instructs them on the only proper context for sexual activity, and that is within the confines of a lifelong covenant marriage between one man and one woman, period. No exceptions. And in the highly promiscuous city of Corinth, Paul's instructions would have been seen hopelessly out of touch. They would have been laughable to say that marriage is the only proper context for sexual activity. It would have been seen as hopelessly out of touch, as hopelessly out of touch as it seems in our culture today. And Paul then shifts to discuss the idolatry, idolatry that was prevalent among the pagans in Corinth. There was a plethora of gods. Gods related to one's trade or guild or or city or family. There were food then sacrificed to these gods. And since these gods were, were simply lifeless idols, they couldn't eat. They didn't want to waste the food. The food that was sacrificed then would be collected and then sold in the market. And then a question. The question was, could the Corinthians participate? Could they participate in eating this food? Could they participate in the sacrifices themselves? See, they knew, they knew there was only one God. They knew there was one true God. They knew these idols were nothing. They knew it was simply a, a pagan superstition. So can they participate? Especially when not participating. Not participating would have made it extremely difficult for them to function in society, even to function in their trades or in their work. And the bigger question is, to what extent could we as Christians participate in the secular culture without compromising our Christian faith? Right, a question that is very relevant to us today. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul talks about the purpose of worship, about godly and God-glorifying worship. And he gives them instructions on the, the proper roles for men and women in worship, the proper use of spiritual gifts, the proper way to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he concludes these instructions with the general principle of worship, that all things should be done decently and order. See, even in worship, we see the pagan thinking was creeping in. Even in this most important thing that a Christian can, be do, can do, that is worshiping a triune God, there is a temptation to compromise, a temptation to assimilate into the pagan practices of the unbelieving culture that surrounded them. In chapter 15, we see the pinnacle of this letter. We see the clear and bold proclamation of our Christian hope. And that hope is that each one of us, each one of us who is in Christ, will be raised from the dead. We will be transformed from this fallen, sinful body that we have to a glorious and a resurrected body. A body that will be like Jesus' body himself. A body that will never experience sickness or decay or death. And this body, this body will be stronger. It will be faster. Our mind will be quicker and will be smarter. We will be more alive than we ever were. And we will continue to get better and better and improve for all eternity. And this is the future reality for everyone who is a born-again, new creation in Christ. And the reason why Paul needed to, to define, uh, defend the resurrection and spend so much time talking about the resurrection is because the, the prevalent Greek worldview had penetrated the Cor- Corinthian church. See, the Greeks always saw that the, the physical was bad, the spiritual was good. And the Greek way of thinking would loathe the idea that we would somehow be eternal and a resurrected by that. would be awful. That would be seen as, as repulsive to the Greeks. And the thinking of the Corinthian church was more influenced by their Greek culture than it was by their Christian faith. And what we see here is that the first century Corinthian church in many ways is identical, was identical to the 21st century American church. See, the same pressures... The same temptations, pressures and temptations to compromise. Pressures and temptation to fail to remain distinct. To fail to remain faithful to our call to Christ. And and just basically become like those who do not know Christ. Basically become indistinguishable from the pagan world. These same temptations exist for us today. Just as much as they existed for the Corinthians. And these two verses that we're looking at today. 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, these two verses distill Paul's instructions throughout this entire letter. They tie it all together, and they provide for us the principles that will protect us, protect us from this temptation to compromise, protect us from the pressures, the strong and overwhelming pressures really to become indistinguishable from those who have not been regenerated, from those who do not know Christ. And these two Two verses, they consist of five commands, five imperatives that give us really the natural outline of this passage. And that's what we're going to follow today. And these commands are, first, be watchful. Second, stand firm in the faith. Third, act like men. Fourth, be strong. And fifth, let all that you do be done in love. Do everything in love. So we're going to look at each of these in turn. So the first command that we're going to look at is be watchful. So be watchful is intentional. Being watchful requires focus, it requires discipline, it requires effort. See, our default is not to be watchful. Our default is to be distracted. See, compromise is our natural tendency. It's a, it's a natural drift, a drift towards the adoption of it, a drift toward the assimilation of the culture's values. And we don't even recognize it when we do it. It is, it is subtle and it is unintentional. And what does it mean to be watchful? Well, I think the easiest way to think about it is, think about a, a Secret Service agent. Secret Service agent who's charged with protecting the president. See, so the president may be speaking at a campaign rally. He may be delivering some major new policy initiative. Now, is the, is the agent listening to the speech? Is he pondering the effects of the policy? I wonder what that's going to do with my, my paycheck. How are my taxes going to go up or not? No. The Secret Service agent has one goal in mind, one thing on his mind, and that is, the protection of the president. That is his only priority. He is focused on that single task. And he scans the crowd looking at them, looking for anything that might be a threat to the president. And the agent is observant. He notices every little detail in the crowd. And each of these details, he runs through a filter. And that filter is, how will this detail affect the safety of the president? This is an active, this is a focused process. And not only does a Secret Service agent watch the crowd, he watches the president. He needs to know where the president is at all times, where he is in relation to potential threats. Threats are then assessed where they are in relation to the president. And these agents, to be effective, they must be knowledgeable of the different types of threats. They need to to study the threats, train to know how to be on the lookout and what to be on the lookout for, and what and who can be a danger to the president. And they must be trained to to immediately recognize these dangers. And likewise, they they must know the president. They must know his habits. They must know the people that he meets with, his movements, to effectively protect him. Well, friends, the same type of discipline, the same type of single-minded focus is needed for the Christian to be watchful. See, our purpose is not to guard the president, but our purpose is to guard the glory of God. Guard the glory of God. And just as a secret service agent must know the president well enough to know what his physical vulnerabilities are, we must know God well enough to know what brings him glory, what activities, what activities of his people will diminish that glory. And armed with this knowledge, this knowledge of God, this knowledge of his glory, we are watchful of the culture, watchful of the church, watchful of ourselves to recognize any threats we may see to his glory. Paul tells us earlier in this letter, in 1 Corinthians 10, 19, he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. See, this is our single-minded focus. This is our single-minded grid. Just as to protect the president was the single-minded focus of the secret service agent, the grid through which he interprets everything he sees, so for the Christian, it's God's glory. God's glory is the grid through which we interpret everything that we see. In our Gospel reading this morning, Jesus takes his closest companions, Peter and James and John, with him to pray and to watch. And Jesus knows, he knows that he and his disciples are about to face their greatest challenge that they have ever faced. See, unbeknownst to the disciples, they are at the, the focal point of redemptive history. This is the most important, the most critical, the most significant part of all of history. See, on the cross, on the cross, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is offered as a substitute to suffer the punishment, the punishment deserved by God's people for their sin. And Jesus suffers this punishment in the place of God's people. And in Christ's sacrifice, his atonement, atonement is made for the sins of the elect. And at this moment, on the cross, Christ purchases the souls of those who belong to him, those who belong to him throughout history. And my friends, this is the most important event in all of world history. And this is where Christ is most glorified, and this is where redemption for God's people is purchased. And as Jesus prepares to go to the cross, there is much opposition, much spiritual opposition. See, Satan wants to destroy Christ. He wants to destroy this this small, weak band of followers that will become the New Testament church. And Jesus instructs Peter, James, and John to watch and to pray. To watch for the temptation and spiritual danger and to pray, to pray for spiritual protection against this danger. So, what do the disciples do? They sleep. Are, they're not watchful, they're not diligent, they're not begging God in prayer to keep them faithful, to protect them from the temptation. They give up. They give up to the temptation and they sleep. They fall asleep. And as such, they are not only they, they're completely unaware of of the dangers they face. And not only do they fail to to prepare for the dangers, they, they blissfully sleep and unaware that there is any danger at all. Now we as Christians, we are to be watchful so that we will see and recognize dangers, see the temptations that are coming. We see the dangers that, that will keep us from glorifying God and really lead us to compromise with the world and lead us really to betrayal of our Lord. See, watchfulness While essential, it's not enough. See, the Secret Service agent, he must recognize the threat, and he must be able to to prevent the threat from being carried out. Seeing a threat and being unable to prevent the threat, being unable to protect the president, really does no good. Well, for the Christian, being faithful is not enough. It's essential for us to recognize the threats, but we also must be able to neutralize the threat, and prevent it from being successful, prevent it from causing us to compromise, causing us to assimilate with the world, causing us to betray our Lord, betray our faith. This is where the second command comes in. Our second command, we are told to stand firm in the faith. See, we have everything we need. We have God's word. We have God's truth. All we need to do is simply stand firm in this truth. Believe this truth. Rest in this truth. Keep believing this truth. Keep trusting this truth. See, we don't need the scheme. We don't need to plot. We don't need to plan. We simply need to trust what God has said and know that the temptation that we face, these temptations are a lie and refuse to be deceived by this lie. It seems so simple, doesn't it? So why is it so hard? Why do we so often fail? Why do we compromise? Why do we not stand firm in the faith? Well, the reason is because we believe the lies rather than believe the truth. We believe the lies rather than the truth. See, we fill our minds constantly and voluntarily with the lies. See, we allow the culture, the anti-God worldview to shape our minds, to shape the way we think. We think. We fill our minds not with God's word, but we fill our minds with the world's propaganda. See, I think he's not shaped by scripture. We adopt the world's narrative as our own narrative. And we spend an exponential amount of more time being shaped by secular narratives than we do by being shaped by scripture. I want you to run a thought experiment with me. Think about last week. Just think about last week. And think about what you put into your mind. Think about the media that you consume. Think about everything you watched on TV, everything you listened to on the radio, every newspaper article you read, every Netflix movie you watched, or YouTube video you watched, or social media that you've read, or or secular books, or, or novels, or romance novels. Whatever you've read, I want you to think of all of that. Now compare it to how much time you spent in God's Word. My friends, we are unknowingly being indoctrinated. The world tells us, the world tells us this book, this book that we all hold in our hands. It tells us it's not real. It tells us it's a mythology, that it's full of errors. Instead, we think Hollywood's real. We think TikTok is real. When the, when the pressure comes, we cave. And my friends, the church is no different than the surrounding culture. See, the problem's not out there. It's easy for us to say, oh, it's out there. It's, it's, it's with the liberal churches. It's, it's, it's with the, the, the pagans out there. No, the the problem is in here. It's in the church. Even among self-proclaimed Bible-believing evangelicals. I looked at a, a, a survey, of Ministries, does a, a state of theology survey every couple of years. And here are their later, latest results. And these they look at the culture, but they also look at the church. And these re, these results that I'm giving are about the self-proclaimed evangelicals, those who who believe the Bible, believe that we must be born again. The first thing we saw here, a majority of self-described evangelicals, 56%, says God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and others. Basically, all ways lead to God. A majority of evangelicals, 56%. My question is, why even have a church? If this is true, why even have the church? Why proclaim the gospel? Why do we send missionaries out? Why do they suffer much hardship, even martyrdom, to bring the gospel to unbelievers? See, if God accepts all religions, and everyone's religious, even the seculars, even the atheists are religious, why do we proclaim the gospel? Why would we go through this effort? And my friends, this is what evangelical churches do. They proclaim the Evangelion, the gospel. So a majority in the evangelical church believe that this church has no reason to exist. What does Scripture say? Well, Scripture says many things here, but I'm going to look at the words of Jesus himself. John 14:6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is no other name. No other name, the sincere follower of any other religion, Whatever that is, think of any other religion, Mormon, uh, Jehovah's Witness, uh, uh, New Age, Islam, Hindu, Buddhism, even self-proclaimed evangelicals. Any one of these sincere followers who is not a new creation in Christ, born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to scripture alone, they are lost and without hope. And unless they repent and by faith alone cling to Christ for salvation... They will spend in eternity in the torments of hell. That's what Scripture teaches. This is the truth of Scripture, regardless of what the majority of self-professed evangelicals say. So that's the first thing. There's a second one. Forty-three percent of evangelicals, almost half, believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Basically, in other words, forty-three percent of self-described evangelicals are not even Christians. I'm not talking about being born again believers. I'm I'm not saying that that they don't, I'm saying they don't even meet the definition of what a Christian is based on the the ecumenical creeds, the Nicene Creed. These are creeds that that are affirmed by all branches of the historic Christian faith, by Eastern Orthodox, by Roman Catholic and Protestant churches. And the Nicene Creed says, among other things, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, True God of true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father by whom all things were made. Nearly half of self-described evangelicals deny one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith. And my friends, this is non-negotiable. If Jesus is simply a man, Christianity is worthless. If Jesus is simply a man, Christianity is worthless, and we are eternally lost in our sins. The third thing. 37% 37% of evangelicals say that gender is a matter of personal choice. And it's probably much bigger than this, because this is probably including evangelicals of all ages. But if you focused in on evangelicals under 30, I would think that this would be even higher than that. There are even students at my children's school, a conservative Christian school, that believe that transgender is okay. Okay. There is so much pressure coming from a godless society on this topic. And many Christians—they're they're, they're more afraid of being canceled than they're afraid of the wrath of God. What Scripture say? Genesis 1:23. God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. See, my friends, God alone determines our gender. We do not. And there are only two genders. There's not an infinite range of them. There is male and there are female. And they were created by God. And there's so much pressure. So much pressure for us to compromise on the Bible's teaching. Because we're afraid. And we're afraid of what the culture is going to say. And we see that even in the church. But my friends, we must stand firm in the faith. We must believe believe what the Bible says is reality. And we must reject all other ideologies competing for our allegiance that contradict the clear teaching of this book, clear teaching of Scripture. Now, the reason for the problem, the reason for the church's failure, not only to stand firm on Scripture, but really even to know what Scripture says, is, I think, due clearly due to a failure in leadership of the church. It's a failure of church elders. See, elders are shepherds. They are to shepherd the flock. They are to protect the sheep, protect the sheep from the wolves. And the elders, they are the guardians of church doctrine. But many of these elders are either wolves themselves, or they have just so fully been derelict in their duties and fallen asleep that they don't even know what's going on. Or they are completely inequipped and ineligible and not gifted and not equipped to be elders. And this brings us to the third command Paul gives, and it's related really specifically to the elders. And the fourth command that he gives is act like men. And this command relates to really the failure of men in the church to act like men and to lead like men in the church. In the church. And as, we, as we've just seen, God has created two genders, men and women. God has given each person his or own specific gender, See, we weren't consulted in this decision. No one came to us and and, and said, do you want to be a male or a female? God has determined this. It is all of God. And it's not popular to say, but what I'm about to say next is even more unpopular. See, God made men and women different. Men and women have different gifts, have different strengths, have different roles. Each is equal in worth. Each is equal in dignity. Each displays a different aspect of the image of God. And each is called to be united to Christ, but men and women are not interchangeable. They do not have the same function. And you see, the thing is, Satan hates men, and Satan hates women. And the reason why he hates men, the reason why he hates women, is because both of them show the the image of God, and he hates God. Both display and bear the image of God. And what Satan does is he seeks to destroy both men and women by removing their distinctions. Satan seeks to create this generic, amorphous, androgynous human being that's neither male nor female. And my friends, transgenderism is satanic. Homosexuality is satanic. And not that those who struggle with these things are satanic, no. No, those who struggle with these things, these are victims. And these are victims that pay a, a terrible price for this affliction, and this terrible price is not because we live in a homophobic or transphobic culture. No, these, these sins are actually celebrated and promoted in these cultures, and many, especially young people, will find that they will do better if they claim to be transgender or or, or, homo, or homosexual. No, that's not the reason. The damage. The reason is because there is damage done. They, they are they are violating the way God created them, and and there is. Horrible mutilation, psychological trauma, and abuse done to to human bodies in ways, because they're used in ways that are contrary to the way God had designed them, the good way that God had made their bodies to function. But transgenderism and homosexuality, these are are not the only ways Satan attempts to remove the God-given distinctions of male and female. In fact, this is his latest and boldest attempt, but it's an attempt that is only possible because of the success he had in early attempts to create this generic human being that's neither female or male. But Satan's primary strategy that we've seen, especially in the church, is egalitarianism. And this is the idea that men and women are functionally interchangeable. A man and a woman, it doesn't matter. You could do the same thing. And Paul combats this faulty idea in other places in this letter. We saw this in, in chapter 11, where Paul speaks about head coverings. And I discussed this at length in an earlier sermon, and you're welcome to to listen to the sermon on sermon audio. And I'm not going to go through the entire argument, but here's my bottom line. Here's my conclusion. It's basically that men and women are to be distinct. They are created differently, and they are to be distinctive. And we are not to remove these distinctions. We are not to attempt to blur the lines between these distinctions. We also looked at chapter 14, where it says that women are to remain silent in church. Again, you can listen to the sermon, but this is not a command that women can't speak and search. That they can't participate in different areas of the worship service. We had women up here leading in, in music. That was not what it was. This is, not, this is not what it's saying. The conclusion, though, is that women cannot perform the authoritative interpretation of Scripture. That is, women can't preach. And this is, this is confirmed by Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy 2.12 and following where Timothy says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. See, it's clear that God limits the role of pastor and elder to biblically qualified men, not to all men, but to biblically qualified men. This role is not open to women. And even as Bible-believing Christians We chafe at this command. And the reason we chafe at it is because Satan is so indoctrinating us into this egalitarian mindset. We think that anything a man can do, a woman can do, and vice versa. But the reality is men and women are different. And this is true physically. No matter how much our culture tries to deny it, a man can never, ever, ever give birth to a child. It is physically impossible. A man cannot feed a a baby out of his own body. It is physically impossible. And likewise, there is a vast difference in size and physical strength and aggression between men and women. This is why your average mediocre male athlete claiming to be a female can shatter women's sports records. It's because we are made differently. God has made us differently. And this is true physically, and it's also true spiritually. God has made men and women differently and given them different spiritual gifts for use in his kingdom. And one gift is not better than the other. They are simply different. And the role of spiritual leader, whether in the family or in the church, is given to the man. But sadly, sadly, in the Corinthians church and in our current church, men have largely abdicated this role. Forcing women into a role they are neither called to nor gifted to because they are falling down on the job. And many women don't seek this role. They're only filling a a spiritual vacuum created by the derelict men. But some women, some women have bought into Satan's lie that they'll never be equal members of the church unless they have the so-called positions of power, which if you really know it, they're positions of service. And anyone who who thinks a position of, of, of leadership is power is not called and qualified for that position. And what these women will do is they will usurp these positions in which they were never called to have. And I know this is going to sound sexist, but God's word and the clear example of biblical history, I think, back up, or, or of, uh, of history, back up the statement. Churches that have compromised the Bible's teaching on, on women elders have quickly compromised on many other clear teachings of scriptures. See, the, the women shepherds, not having the divine calling and the divine gifting, are unable to protect the flock against the heretical errors. And once you see that, these heretical errors keep coming in, flow and flooding in. See, if, if someone's going to break into my house, I'm not going to to send my wife to confront them. I'm not going to send my daughters to confront them. I'm going to confront them. I'm going to take my six-foot-five son with me to confront them. I am not going to to uh, let them do it. See, God has given, he has given the men bigger physical size and strength and aggression for the purpose of being the protector, both the physical and the spiritual protector. I knew this couple, both the husband and wife, they were very knowledgeable of Scripture. They both were missionaries. And they had the, the wife had a very extroverted personality. She was a, a very much a naturally better communicator than her husband, a better teacher than her husband. And she would frequently witness to people. She'd be out in the community. She'd be riding her bike. And she'd re- meet someone and say, what church do you go to? Or can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you what Jesus is doing in my life? And she would constantly do this. And on one particular occasion, she was meeting with her neighbor. And her, her neighbor was a Mormon. And she went into a Mormon and she asked what church. And, and they started talking. And the Mormon was saying, yeah, I love Jesus. And Jesus is my Savior. And they're talking that they're great. And she comes out after this encounter. And she says, Mormons are really Christians. They believe the same thing. They love Jesus. They're united to Jesus. And the husband says, it clearly explains to her, says that Mormons may use the same words, but they believe in a completely different Jesus. And if you want to know more about that, I'd be happy to talk to you about it more. But they don't have the same view of what Jesus is. And he was very clear that they were not Christians. And see, what I I saw is really an example of the different giftings. See, God had given to this man and to this woman. The woman was great at building bridges. She was loving, she was nurturing, and she wanted so much to see her neighbor saved. That when she she heard that her neighbor loves Jesus and believes in Jesus, she saw a unity that did not exist. Now the husband didn't have the same gifts of communication and and bridge building that his wife had, but he knew the truth. He had the gift of discernment. He could discern between an apparent surface level unity and a deeper unity between the Christian or a deeper disunity between the the Christian and the Mormon neighbor. And I don't know if it's, it's fair to generalize from this example about all women and all men, but I clearly saw here that the husband had the natural gifts needed to be an elder where the wife didn't. He had the gift to be a defender of the faith, a protector of the sheep. Again, where the wife did not. And I think Paul here is giving both a command and a rebuke to the Corinthian church in this instruction, where he tells them to act like men. He's basically telling man up, man up. Don't act like little boys. Act like men. See, this was a problem in the church, not just with the men, but all of them. They lacked maturity. They acted like children. They did not act like adults. But this rebuke is specifically aimed at the men. It's not aimed at the women. And he's telling them, don't sit back. Don't abdicate your responsibility to women. The men are to lead. They must be the spiritual leaders in their homes and in their churches. And the men must watch out for the spiritual wolves, the spiritual wolves that are attempting to kill their family, that are attempting to kill the flock. And to do this, men must know truth. We must study truth. We must spend time in God's word, spend time in his truth. And then after we know this, it's not just to to study for for, for study's sake and, and, and to get fat with all this knowledge. Once we have this knowledge, then we are to fight. We are to fight. And when dealing with spiritual wolves seeking to devour our loved ones, when dealing with these destructive heresies that will make shipwreck of our faith, this is not the time for gentleness. This is the time that we are to fight. We are to fight with everything we have. Fight to win. And fight with no less intensity than if we were protecting our wife and children from a physical attacker. See, I'm I'm not a particularly brave man. But if someone tried to hurt my wife or my family, they would literally have to do it over my dead body because I would fight to the death to protect them, as I'm sure any one of you husbands and fathers would do as well. But my friends, the stakes are so much higher in the spiritual realm. We would do this physically, but what about the spiritual realm? Oftentimes we're, we're completely negligent about the spiritual harms. And, and physical attacks that only kill your body. But these spiritual attacks, they can destroy our eternal souls. How can we are not as diligent when we see these spiritual threats coming to our families. And this is the spiritual command that Paul has given to men. Man up. Fight for your family. Fight for your church. Don't allow doctrines of demons to infiltrate your church, bringing destruction to your loved ones. And this command is closely related to the fourth command that Paul gives at the end of verse 13. And this fourth command is be strong. See, this is not the time for gentleness. There is a time for gentleness, but there's also a time for brute strength. And as men, we are involved in an eternal life and death battle for the souls of our family, for the souls of our congregation, if you are elders. And it's not a time to be weak. We cannot be half-hearted. We cannot be distracted, and only interest in our ease and our comfort. All along playing games, watching TV, surfing the web, when there is a spiritual battle raging. We must fight, we must battle, we must be strong, and we must prevail. But we must also realize that the strength is not native to us. We are not fighting by our own strength. If we try to do that, we surely will fail. We surely will lose. This strength comes from the Lord. Christ is our defender. We battle by abiding in him, by abiding in his truth, his strength, his word, and scripture, prayer, Faith, truth, holiness, these are our weapons. These are our strength. And if we do this, if we abide in Christ, if we stand firm in Him, if we are strong in Him, we are guaranteed victory. We are guaranteed victory. Now, it won't be easy. It won't be painless. In fact, it will be very difficult. It may be very costly, costly to us personally. But if we remain in Him, we will prevail. He will give us the victory and he will use us men as shepherds to guard our families and to protect his sheep from Satan's wolves that seek to destroy them. And if we stopped here, it would be easy to get the wrong idea. It would be easy to see our spiritual battle as some, some testosterone-filled, chest-beating, grunting, belching exercise. No, no, no different than a football game or, or, or a physical battle. Now, there are similarities in intensity and effort and focus, but there are also vast differences, differences in tactics. And the tactics we are to use are seen in our final instruction that Paul gives in verse 14. He says, let all that you do be done in love. See, this command speaks first about the motivation of our fight. It's not our hatred of our enemy that motivates our fight. It's our love for God. It's our love for his truth. It's our love for his glory. We love God so much that we cannot bear to see his name blasphemed. We cannot tolerate to see his beautiful truth destroyed by heresy. We fight because we love our family. We love the members of our church. We love them so much that we will protect them from the ravenous wolves that seek to devour them. We love them so much, these these little ones who believe in Christ, That we do not want to see anything disturb them and distract them from the truth and we fight error and heresy because we love the lost the lost who need to hear the gospel the, the only means of their salvation the only hope that they have is the gospel we love them and we refuse to allow Satan to steal the seed and to block up their ears from hearing it so we stand firm in the truth that we proclaim and we proclaim God's word but this command not only speaks uh, to our motivation to fight, it also speaks to the method of our fight. We fight against demonic strongholds. We fight against arguments. We fight against faulty doctrine, against propaganda, against error. We do not fight against people. People are our mission field. We love the captive soul while we, all along while we rage against the captor. And the captor is Satan and these evil ideologies. We love the, the men and women who are trapped in homosexuality and transgenderism while we hate the lies that hold them captive and that tell them they have no hope that this is their identity, who they are. We love them enough to tell them the truth. Not what they want to hear, but we tell them the truth and we give them the gospel. Their only hope, the gospel of grace, their only means of eternal deliverance. And We love not only them, we love the self-righteous legalists who rages against the, we rage against the evil heresy that denies grace and, and, and robs God of his glory, that, that somehow I can be okay in my own efforts in God's sight. This will ultimately damn their souls. We love our non-Christian neighbor by lovingly and respectfully sharing the good news of Christ with them, and that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And more often than not, this love will not be appreciated, but rather will be met with rage and hatred. And even that, even that, we absorb this hatred. We absorb this rage toward us, just as our Savior did. Our Savior did. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered unjustly, he did not threaten, but he continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. And when Jesus hung on the cross... When the crowds mocked him and, and spit on him and, and shouted, crucify him. Jesus did not curse them. Jesus did not immediately strike them dead and send them to hell. He had the power to do it, Even on the cross, he had the power. Rather, Jesus prayed for them. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you see, what we are called to is very difficult. Very difficult. See, the world gives us two options. And both of these options are easy Relatively easy compared to what God calls us to do. The one option is to completely surrender, is to completely capitulate to the world. Give the world what they want. Completely abandon our beliefs. That's the one option. And really, that is easy. The other option, again, is also easy. And this is total warfare. All-out warfare. It's hatred of our enemy. Destroy our enemy. Seeking to annihilate those who oppose us. The scorched earth. Take no prisoners. But as Christians, neither of these are an option for us. As Christians, we must remain faithful to Christ. We must remain faithful to his word. We can never compromise with error. But at the same time, we are to love our enemies. We are to be kind to them. We are to pray for them. We are to seek their good, not their harm. And their good is not to continue in their rebellion against the living God, but rather by repentance repentance from their sin, to turn to God in faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to be reconciliated with God. And my friends, this calling is not natural. It is supernatural. This calling is impossible on our own. But with God, with his grace, all things are possible. And our, our charge is that we will be faithful in this calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult calling. We are in a different, difficult world. There are those who oppose us. There are those who oppose you. And there will be so much temptation for us to compromise. We just want to get along. We don't want to battle. But that's not what you've called us to do. We must remain faithful to you. So I pray for everyone who hears my voice that we will remain faithful. And if anyone who hears my voice does not belong to you, Lord, that you will change that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, they will become a new creation. But for those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that you will give us the faith. You will give us the courage to stand firm on that faith and stand firm on your word. We pray for your glory. Amen.